Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome back. On today's episode, tears are shed. Death touches us all. And memories remain. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. So John, one of our recent episodes was entitled, The Struggle is Real. Mm -hmm. And I got to admit, today's episode was a bit of a struggle for me personally and, and in a completely different way. In it was highly emotional when mm-hmm. when we say in the introduction that tears are shed it was implying that tears in fact were shed by each of us as as well as our amazing guest heather no absolutely andrew this this was a crucial conversation but a very tough conversation um in fact we had to record this intro like four times because i'd start and start to go down a path and not want to get to the end and i think it's a bit of a metaphor for how we often deal with death we know it's inevitable. We know it's going to touch us and everyone we love, and yet we avoid it. We avoid talking about it. We try and pretend that we're younger than we are as a way to maybe prevent ourselves from getting closer to it. And so knowing that we're going to have an episode where we spend an hour, an hour and a half talking about death and the untimely death of somebody in his prime, we knew it was going to be tough going in. And yeah, absolutely. The, the tears were there and, and we've decided to leave them there. Um, it would be tempting in the editing process to take out the long, awkward pauses where we're all trying to collect ourselves, but that would not be vulnerable or authentic or even a real example of how people, you know, handle this kind of conversation. It's tough, but it has to be had because death is a reality for every human being. Mm-hmm. And I really applaud Heather for being able to speak openly and share her experience with us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, there's a lot to be learned from that. And she clearly, she, she doesn't have any regrets and and that's not the way she goes through life. And, And I think that being able to open up and, and use her blog and, and be able to speak with people has been a, a great way of, uh, finding solace and, and, having a form of therapy in through expressing emotions. And I think it's something that, that when we've spoken about it before, but when we don't express those true feelings, it can be really harmful. And the topic of death is, is one that I myself have been terrified of and neglected to open myself up to for a number of years. And and this was certainly a, a learning opportunity for me. Exactly. And, and I think for us, it, it touched us both, not only because Brock was a friend, but because Andrew and I have both lost fathers, you know, in the last, you know, recent years. And we're still grieving. And that's one of the things that comes out is, is you don't ever get over grief. Um, in fact, it continues to come. It just changes the way it comes. And it comes at, we talk about how it comes at unplanned times, inconvenient times a scent, a song, an experience we're having, we'll get struck with the realization that this person we loved is no longer with us to experience it. We can't text them. We can't talk to them about it. And the grief can hit like a thunderclap. And it's it's difficult. And to see Heather just so authentically share what that's still looking like for her 17 months later was, was such an inspiration. And her blog, Andrew mentioned the blog, and it came up many times throughout the episode. We can't emphasize her blog enough. 
take some time and read through her posts. It's some of the most authentic, raw, honest, wise, wonderful, wonderful writing. The best, best stuff I've ever read on the subject. And it, and it helped me in my own grief and it, it will definitely help you in yours. Yeah. It's Heather W. com is the blog. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in the midst of grief or uh, experiencing these sorts of emotions right now, uh, I, I implore you to, to take in the experience regardless. It's showcasing true passionate human emotion at its best. And just one other note on grief that we touch on in the episode, but the importance of being okay with whatever emotion is being expressed and, and how each person will navigate that differently. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things that I learn and, and appreciate about what Heather shares is how okay it, it is to go through whatever you're feeling and to make sure that we don't deny ourselves of those emotions because that's when we, we never truly let them go is if we keep them locked in. And there's no, you're supposed to grieve this way, way of dealing with death. You grieve and you, you surf those waves and, and you learn things along the way. And I think a lot of, a lot of people struggle with grief is they feel like they have to do it in a certain way. It has to look a certain way, perhaps like it does on a movie. Heather talks very openly about that. And I found that very inspiring to, to know that I can grieve in my own way and it's okay. And through her devastating loss and a completely unexpected turn of her life, she is still a extremely positive, warm, mm-hmm. open, genuine person. And it comes through in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. And I encourage you to open yourself up to the feelings that, that you might experience while listening. Do you have any questions for us at all? Nope. I don't think so. I've enjoyed your podcast and I like this. I like doing this as another, yet another way of keeping Brock alive. It's great. Yes. Cool. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I was curious a little bit about kind of what you want the conversation to be about. Exactly. I feel like we don't really talk about death very much in, in society. And so I, that's what I was, I was noticing with myself that I was surprised by my own response to it and, uh, and, and Brock's response to it as well. So I like, I like the, having the conversations around it because people don't know what to say and they don't know what questions to ask and they get nervous mm-hmm. about these things. So I like the idea of, that's what I do with my website is I like mm-hmm. the idea of exploring the, the surprising things around grief and death and terminal cancer. I applaud you already for, for starting that conversation and, and, having the courage to go there. Thanks. You know, where I wanted to start, are we ready to go? Okay, we're going. I remember you saying to me one time, Heather, that you fell in love with Barack when you saw him dance. Well, I was I was sick. I, had, I was sick enough that I didn't want to drink any alcohol in my 20s. So that's pretty sick. <laughs> and uh, my friend Quinn invited me to go to a birthday party. And I thought, well, I'm sick. I, I should be responsible and stay home. But I always have a good time with Quinn, and I always had a good time with that group of people. So I said yes, and so we went to the birthday party, and we were there at the buzzer for the apartment building. We buzzed to get in the building, and I looked up, 
and there was this window on my left, a story up, where this very tall man was just stuffing his face at the at the table of snacks, <laughs> cramming it in. And I should say too, this uh, our friend who was having the birthday is gay, and so when you go to a gay man's birthday party, you shouldn't be looking for love, because if you're a straight woman. <laughs> Because right. the only people at these birthday parties are other beautiful, beautiful gay men and uh, straight ladies is what happens. So I knew as soon as I saw this guy through the window that, I mean, I should have known that he was probably gay, but regardless, I just was drawn to him and against all common sense. So we go in and uh, the birthday boy opens the door and he says, Heather, do you still like tall men? And I said, yes, I do. And mm-hmm. he said, well, I have a present for you. And I said, well, it's your birthday, not mine. And he said, go over to the snack table. I brought him from work. He's yours. So I make it over there. And uh, as I say, I was sick. So I didn't drink that night at all. And Brock almost never drank. But that night, he 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 was he overconsumed. And he barely remembers meeting me. But that's fine, whatever. Um, but we, you know, as the party progressed, we spent the night. We went dancing and had a good time at Rich's house. And all of this and he barely remembers it but I remember it and I the more I saw him you know swing dancing at the gay bar and <laughs> and juggling out on the, on the sidewalks outside the more I I just really liked him and so I made Rich poke him poke Brock until finally he asked me out I knew mm-hmm. once I had him on a date he would be mine I could get him then <laughs> but I knew as soon as I saw him that I wanted him so how much time elapsed from when you saw him in the window to the first date um, well, Brock was a funny guy. He did the whole wait three days thing. It almost killed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just kept poking through Rich. Get that guy to call me. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe a week or so. I don't know. And then we had three dates, and then, and then we moved in together. Ha-ha. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's awesome. And for work at, at this time, what, what, were you, what were you guys doing? Well, I was working in the... A communications shop for the Ministry of Children and Families for the government and Brock was an intern and he had been placed in the communications shop for the opposition so we were actually opposites in work we weren't supposed to talk about what we were doing with each other which was funny mm-hmm. and uh, I disclosed my relationship at work <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome and then at some point as the story goes and your words, you left your cushy government jobs to follow this strange dream that Brock had. I love adventure and change, and I say yes to pretty much everything. And so we were living, at the time we were renting a a penthouse, which we thought was what we were supposed to do to make us happy. And we had these great jobs, we were making a lot of money, and uh, just living this nice, really easy life. We were both not happy, perfectly happy yet with this although we had found each other and so one day a weekend he uh brock said i think i want to be a farmer and i said great that sounds like fun (laughs) and so he got out of bed and ran over to the computer and started looking up properties and within three months we'd bought our land our 10 acres of farmland an hour north of victoria and then within the year i changed jobs i managed to find a communications job up in duncan and then within the year he'd quit his job to be a full-time farmer was there any any notice, any idea of this coming down the chute in advance? Did you were you, were you big gardeners or fans of fresh produce, or, or, or how did this come about? 
Well, so we, as part of this place we were renting, uh, the, you know, top floor, it was this huge deck. This deck was bigger than the house we ended up living in, actually. Um, and Brock would, he had these Rubbermaid containers and he would lug up these big bags of potting soil and he would plant peas and zucchini and all these things. And then at Christmas time, there were all these points. I don't know how to say the word poinsettia, poinsettia. Those Christmas flowers, what? yeah, they all showed up by the dumpster because people were getting rid of them, and he would pick them up and bring them upstairs to try to resuscitate them on his little weird deck farm he had going. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big red flag, should have been. A red yeah. flag. <laughs> and at one point, he, he said, he said, just so you know, Heather, I get spring fever every spring. I'm going to want to do something big and ridiculous. You need to stop me. You know, I, I, I'm going to want to go on a big road trip or something. But just so you know, this is going to happen and you need to stop me. So then a couple of months later, he says, I want to be a full-time vegetable farmer. And I said, great, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so you didn't have any inhibitions. You, didn't, you, you weren't like, what? Like, we have all this money. We, we, have, we have a good thing going. There's too much risk. You were just right away, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. We were... We're, we're both those kind of people. And, yeah. and honestly, we were bored. It was so boring, just this whole... I was bored. I was really bored. I didn't feel like I had enough to do. And um, I would just nap. I'd spend hours napping. Hmm. And it wasn't depression. I was just bored. Hmm. <laughs> Might as well have a nap. And then Brock, he hated being told what to do. Mm-hmm. He was always... He just It made him crazy. He was told once at work, he had this idea and, and uh, it got shot down and and he said, but this makes more sense. My idea makes more sense. And they said, Brock, you're paid to do this work, not to think too much. Oh, and yeah, yeah, right. That was the yeah, felling blow yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can imagine <laughs> nope. his face when they said that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How to remove any motivation from an employee. Yeah. Say that. Well, but at the same Brock. time, he was really good at what he did. He was a, mm-hmm. uh, his title was senior trade policy advisor. He liked his work. And they were they wanted to fast track him. They wanted him to be a deputy minister or an AD or an ADM. Um, you know, within a couple of years, they were working to fast track him in the government mm-hmm. because they saw his potential. But he just couldn't. He, he was not happy with it. Yeah. So when it came time to make the decision, that sounds like it, it was a pretty quick decision to start the farm. <laughs> were there? <laughs> we're so irresponsible. Yes. <laughs> Wonderfully irresponsible. Or, or just good at making decisions. You don't need to take the time. But w- were there any fears associated with it? Um, I really had no concept of what we were getting into. And that's served me well my whole life. If someone explained to me, hey, Heather, do you want to take on half a million dollars of debt? Do you want to work 14-hour days, seven days a week? All like, Do you want to do that? I'd say no. Right. I'm not a, you hmm. know, why would I do that? But I had no idea what I was getting into, which is great. And Brock had a little bit of an idea, but I think it just got better and better for him. He wasn't negatively surprised by it. He he definitely understood what we were doing. And if all else failed, you know, we could always go back to our government stuff or or go on to another adventure. There's no, it doesn't matter. You, you can always you can always try the next fork in the road and see where it takes you. <laughs> so just for those people who think of the idyllic scene of the farmer riding along in the tractor with a you know a, a straw hat and a, a piece of wheat in their mouth he and... did have a straw hat actually yeah. Yeah. and he did put the wheat in his mouth he did <laughs> I, was gonna... grass <laughs> I was gonna ask what it was really like but i guess that's what it was really like but but heather from your perspective what what was it really like owning a farm 
it was it was so intense. I have never worked that hard in my life. I have never been so exhausted and and uh, and so and super happy. But um, just the constant work of it, I've never experienced that before. Now I get kind of overwhelmed if I have three to dos in a day. Mm-hmm. But we would we would I mean Brock his to do lists were multiple pages long. It was it was epic. There was always something more to do. There was one summer I worked on the farm with him as a as a like a farm worker. It was the only summer I did it, 2010, and uh, we were so dirty. <laughs> we were just so dirty because there's no point in showering. You're just going to get dirty the next day. Why would you bother, right? Yeah. And you're so tired. The idea of take, stopping for a shower is just too much effort. Uh, we were so hungry because there was no one in the kitchen making us food. We were just getting dirty, and then we'd just go to Subway. <laughs> we'd grow yeah. beautiful organic vegetables <laughs> for people all day and then go to Subway. Go to Subway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you call this farm Macaria. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. what is the what is the story behind that? Well, Macario Farm was the name of Brock's parents' hobby farm mm. when he was growing up, so we had the signage already. <laughs> so it was a practical decision. <laughs> it started as that, yeah. And yeah. they they found that word uh, in the Bible, and it meant fertile or blessed. But you know, now with Google, we Googled it. And there are all these other layers of meaning. It's the feast that's served at a sort of like a wake, a Greek mm. wake. And it's the it's the menu, the feast. Mm-hmm. And I love that, right? I mean, yeah. farms are, even our vegetable farm, it's all about death. It's all about decay and and the cycle of life and all that. And it's the feast to celebrate the life. So I loved that end of it. And Brock yeah. thought it was funny because he found a definition that meant to be beyond the cares of the world. Hmm. And that made him giggle every time because farming is so much about yeah. concrete, real cares of the world. But to be beyond it, we felt like we'd escaped government and escaped that whole do what you're supposed to do lifestyle. And we were beyond the cares of that. Now we were into real, real life. A number of people that have left those government jobs as, mm-hmm. as you did and, and gone for something a little bit more tranquil and, and with a deeper sense of connection to the earth. Tranquil. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe that's the wrong word, <laughs> but I'll, I'll stick with the deeper sense of connection with the earth and, and at least kind of gone away from that monotonous government job yeah. that that lost appeal and i wonder if you could speak to why the, why it might be such a trend and how people because not everyone can move to the country and become a farmer so how people might get more of that in their normal day-to-day lives hmm. well I, I say it's a trend because uh in 2007 2008 in canada there was that 100 mile diet book that came out yeah and that that was a real really big part of the local movement and i i think that triggered a lot of the back to the landers in in our generation um this happened before in 1930 <laughs> there was a big back to the land movement and it, it happened in the i think it was 1970 i can't remember but all of the books on our bookshelf of our farming books were all written in 1930 1970 and 2008 hmm. it's just those are the three big waves that we could identify but I, yeah, I think every once in a while there's just this group of people who, you know, they just they don't like the recipe, and they they kind of want to change it up. Yeah, because we were all raised by baby boomers, right? And so they had their own recipe for what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people are seem to be trying to find a different way to do it. But I, we met couples all the time. You can, I mean, in Duncan, I can name you know a whole bunch of them that left the recipe. They they didn't want to be architects anymore. Or they didn't want to 
do the thing they were doing. If you go to a farmer's market and ask a farmer what they were doing before their farm, the results are surprising. <laughs> You'll meet all kinds of people with amazing stories. Angie and I met you and fell in love with you guys instantly because we had a similar leaving our comfortably miserable lives <laughs> for for a new for a new experience and thus began a, a decade long <laughs> relationship 2013 um things really changed for you with little Isaac yep was born. Isaac was born in 2013 yeah he decided to turn it into a true family farm <laughs> well we were getting old too <laughs> I feel like we should hurry up with the baby thing but um yeah actually that was that was a good little metaphor because we were plant you know we're farmers we're planters you know when to plant the seeds so you can harvest right hmm. and so our whole goal was to have a baby in October because hmm. late October or November because then we could sort of hang out with it all winter before the craziness started and we'd have to start neglecting it um so we you know we we aimed for late October, early November, and then the way things were, he was born premature, and we had him in September, right in the middle of the busiest harvest month, pretty much. So that was a, that was a good uh, that was a good sort of warning shot for <laughs> you can make plans, but they're going to get they're probably going to get messed up. Early that next year, wasn't that when Brock decided that his small farm was not enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's so. He wanted funny. he wanted more now. Of course, right? I mean, yeah. he, we were always, and it was like a game of chicken, right? He'd yeah. say, you know, Heather, we could just maintain the status quo this year, and you know, we'd make some profit, and we could put that toward a, a proper house, or you know, we we could do the status quo, Heather, or we could double again. Let's try to double. Should we try to double again, or you know, should we just stay at where we are? And knowing me, you know, that's why he was asking me because yeah. I would say. Go big or go home, Brock. <laughs> you know, let's it wasn't, do it. It wasn't really a question. <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted me to cheer him on. That's all that was. So, yeah. So I would enable him and get my, he would talk about all the exciting new things we could do. And I'd get all jazzed up. And yeah, we were ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and this exciting new thing was to the tune of 65 more acres. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> we had doubled every year. We were maxed out of growing space. We knew that we could you know, uh, grow for certain markets. Whole Foods was opening up in Victoria and we were, we were the largest or about to be the largest organic vegetable farm on the South of the Island. So we had all these great visions and goals and we found this beautiful piece of property and Brock devised this leasing scheme for five years. That was, uh, very good for us for sure. And then, and I think good for the landlord too. So we ended up signing that five year lease in just when Isaac was, you know, less than a year old. And that would have given us 65 more acres to grow on, which is great. So we decided we would just double in, uh, in 20, what was that, 2014? 2014. Yeah, 2014. We would just double. That's it. We would save the rest of the 65 for future expansions. You made a, you made a very important decision besides the 65 acres in, in the early part of that year to get some insurance. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this this would ultimately become an absolute game changing decision. Yeah. We, uh, I mean, we were young then still, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what that was 2014. So I was 34 and Brock was 35. And, but as soon as he said five year lease and I understood there was, I mean, it would have been, if anything had happened to him in that five years, it would have meant, uh, I would owe $150,000 mm-hmm. to the landlord, which is a lot of money. 
So I said, no, if you're going to do a five-year lease, I, we need to get insurance on you. We have to get critical illness, you have to get disability, and we have to get life insurance because I don't want to be on the hook for 150 grand. And what if you break your leg, right? What if anything happens and you're stuck in your bed and you can't farm right now? That's devastating. So you need to get insurance. So he did, and it was a lot of effort on his part making the time to go and do it all and do the medical stuff and whatever. Um, and then the, the insurance payments every month were 256 something like that dollars. It's a mm -hmm. lot of money that for is. when you're 34 yeah. and 35 years old. But but he got it done, and that made me feel a lot better about the commitment. Well, the and it, it's commitment. such a tough sell to to 30 year olds to get life mm -hmm. insurance, right? Because we well, no, you know, as you said earlier. You know, the, the question around talking about death and mortality, we don't like to do that anyways. And I no. think there's just something within us where when we go, go through that process, we're almost admitting the fact that, yeah, yeah, we are going to die one day. And a lot of people don't want to admit that to themselves. So then they think by avoiding getting life insurance, they can somehow avoid the inevitability of death, which we know doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing that you, you pushed through and did that. And I think any any person right now who sells life insurance is nodding their head. That's saying this is exactly <laughs> what I'm telling people. It's mm -hmm. not just about business. It's it's this security. Well, I didn't know how much the monthly payments were, and if he had, if he, if I had known, if I'd paid attention, then I might have said, you know, oh, we don't really need that. That's a lot of money per month. But yeah, it was, we were responsible risk takers. Is how we always kind of mm -hmm. thought about ourselves. You mm -hmm. know. Like we would, we had a few loans from people we knew would lend us money to help with the farm. We would invest that money in a barrel washer for the carrots or in some piece of machinery. And even that, we always made sure we used that money for an asset so that if anything happened, we could sell the asset and pay off the loan. Hmm. So responsible risk, risk takers was our motto. Hmm. So how long after that, uh, uh, the process of taking out the insurance, did Brock start to show any symptoms of illness? It was, um, it wasn't long. It, we were right within that window because there's a certain window where if you get life insurance and then say like a month later, you get diagnosed with something, then they figure you've scammed the system and you're, they won't honor the insurance. So we were right there. Like it was, I think a, like a couple of weeks we were within that window of them not believing us. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't remember. Maybe it was, it was sometime in the early spring when you got the life insurance and by October I think it was he was starting to sleep that was the big thing I noticed was it was you know busy harvest season we have 20 crew who are waiting for instructions or for something they need something from him and he would come in and he'd say I'm just going to have a little nap and I'd say what <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about you can't have a nap it's October and it's daylight and you have people here and he'd say oh, I just need a little I just need a little little power nap so he'd lie down and sleep for three or four hours and that was really really weird for him that was not natural and then at the same time he was starting to have a bit of stomach pain and i thought ulcers or something because you know a lot of stress running a farm any business really but it was so serious that this is discomfort that he actually went to a doctor which for i think a lot of men is a big deal to mm -hmm. to admit it's that bad so he yeah the sleeping and the stomach pain and then he ended up we, he went and he was insistent with his doctor and we were really lucky he had an, an extremely good family doctor and uh, they just kept testing him until they they did some sort of scan or something and that's when they found that he had a very large uh, lump growth on his left kidney and he also had the doctor saved this one for a couple of meetings in but he also had some shadows in his lungs and uh, yeah so as soon as he said the 
the one on the kidney, then I, I, went, I was at that appointment and that was not an easy appointment because I had no clue. I didn't understand really what was happening. Yeah, you, you didn't go into that appointment with a, with a trepidation. Did, did you feel like this, this, could be, this could be very dire or did you feel like it's probably just an ulcer? Probably just an ulcer. And yeah. And we were so young. We were so young that you don't go to a doctor appointment and expect to get bad news, right? right. Especially when this was the ongoing joke for the, the three years Brock was sick. It was, you know, we'd meet a new doctor and they say, so what's going on? And we'd say, well, Brock is like an extremely healthy man. Oh, but also he has stage four kidney cancer. <laughs> but I mean, in every other way, he was healthy, super, super healthy. And then, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it was an ongoing joke. Um, do you think that was the, the best way that you knew how to, to put those two completely separate facts together yeah well humor right i mean uh i'm a very positive perky person and i've never really learned to deal with uh, sad stuff very well and so that was just how i dealt with it was cancer jokes like i would tease brock if he was having a bit of a rough day i'd say oh, was that your man cancer acting up do you need a little <laughs> like a man cold right but man cancer um <laughs> And I, I like to think, <laughs> he never told me to stop. So I like to think that it was okay. But I, I mean, he was not that kind of guy. He was more uh, more realistic, I guess, than me. But humor, humor was a big part of it, of getting us through it all. But also, I felt like Brock was extremely optimistic from the get-go. Like even saying stage four cancer... I remember, I've, I'll never forget it, the night you came over to our house and sat on our living room and we all cried together as you told us. And I remember Brock just had this facial expression that just said, yeah, but you know, I, I think, you know, I think we're going to do this and we're going to do this. It wasn't this, he didn't, he didn't exude this sense of devastation at that point. No. There, there was hope, there was, there was light in his eyes and I remember when you when you left that night. You know, as much as we cried, we 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 felt that there was there was still hope. We didn't feel like this this was it. Mm. And do you feel like he he had that hope and belief? So denial is a really amazing thing, right. and I that's the biggest sort of lesson I got out of Brock being sick was, and and even now with with grief, it's amazing the things our brains will do because Brock and I were you know we're smart people like we. We know stuff. We understand life and death. We had a farm, um, but but for so long we just didn't quite grasp that he was going to die, and um, it was amazing, like just how much they could say to us and show us the X-rays, and we'd say, "Oh yeah, that looks terrible. Yeah, he's definitely going to die." But in our brains, it, we I got, I, um, I filled out passport applications for us because he kept talking about doing a big one last big trip and he would say one last big trip right but I still checked the 10-year box for him not the five-year box I checked the 10-year box and it, it cost me a little more money to do that right but I still checked that box because my brain said well I don't want to just get a five-year one he might need it in more than that it, 
and even though we knew his life expectancy was two to five years, I still, your brain will still do it. It's, it's amazing. Looking back, are you, were you grateful for denial? Or do you feel like it was, it was, it was an impediment? I, I think in general, it was really good. Um, there's a whole thing in medical community about how honest you should be with cancer patients, with terminal cancer, and maybe other chronic terminal illnesses as well. I don't know. But uh, the first doctor specialist we saw um, said that Brock wouldn't, probably wouldn't live out of his 60s. And that was devastating to us, right? We cried. Like, that, was, that was a devastating idea. So we, we sort of mourned that a little bit. And then, uh, and I'm still mad at that doctor a little bit, right? Um, yeah. because, because we thought that, we made the decision to farm for one last season in 2015. And we should, never, we should not have done that. But we did because we honestly thought he wouldn't live out of his 60s. All we had to do was Google stage four kidney cancer and we would have known better. But and we both actually even Googled it and then just didn't talk about the results. And my brain forgot it immediately, just stopped it, like intentionally misunderstood what the words meant because I didn't want to know. Mm -hmm. And so we were operating with this idea that 60s, okay, great. So we need to continue our farm because we don't want to lose our customers. We got to have continuity. It's our only source of income. So let's farm for another season at least and see what happens after the big surgery where they take his, a big tumor out. So we did that. And in farming world, you spend all your money in the spring and you make it back and then a little bit more in the fall. So in the spring, we made a decision to farm again, spent all the money we had and kind of then were held hostage by the farm because we needed to get that money out by the fall. And by, the, <clears throat> by July or August, that's when we understood what was happening because we finally got to see um, our oncologist in Victoria and he's the one who said two to five years. Mm -hmm. And that was that was just obviously devastating mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we managed to finish up the season with various things we did and uh, got, out, got out of it and made the decision to stop the farm. And, and that, was, that was a big, I mean, see, that's what I mean, like denial, right? Like we made the decision to stop the farm, which shows that we understood it was terminal cancer, but, but really we didn't. We really didn't understand. Like Brock was still making farm plans up to the last month he died, he was still planning for the next farm, you know, refining it and making it a better business model and all this sort of stuff because your brain doesn't want to believe that it's going to end. What yeah. would, it, what do you think would happen if not for that denial? I, um, I think it would have been a lot sadder <laughs> for longer, but, but the denial was sort of a crutch and there's a, um, there's this book that I found in the hospice that that helped us both so much. And one of them, the, one of the first chapters is about denial. And it says denial is a very useful crutch. Do not throw it away until you have something else to lean on. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. I, we just held on to that for as long as we could. And I tried to protect Brock's denial <laughs> when mine wavered. And I think he did the same for me. What's What's always been amazing to me is the decision you made shortly after was it 2016 when i think you perhaps you the denial was lifting a little bit and and you had come to terms with you know you had a few years left together that you decided why not let take a big trip across canada <laughs> <laughs> so so it's like now the denial is starting to lift you're starting to come to terms with this devastating news and instead of 
you know, basically just hunkering down and waiting, you know, for, for the inevitable. You plan this amazing cross Canada trip where you drove across the country. I, I still I still think about that all the time. How that, that that's tiring and stressful even when you're you're full of health and vitality. And yet you did it and you plan you did it for three months. Like talk to us about how that idea came up and how all that happened. Well, it was spring fever. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering that actually. Yeah, good old Brock, every spring, like clockwork. But I think he really, what he really wanted to do was go to the States. That's what he wanted. He wanted to see, you know, all the big uh, American national parks. But, Mm. and we we did the research and medical insurance for someone who is, you know, actively declining. And there's no way he could get a doctor to say you'll be fine in six months. So he could not get travel medical insurance. And so that meant we had to either risk it all and go to the States or not, and oh, being sort of responsible, we decided not to. And so the compromise was we, uh, we decided to drive across Canada and we had our uh, 1986 Ford Frontier motorhome, um, <laughs> which we'd bought for our farm crew to live in and never ever used it ourselves really. Um, so finally we got it tuned up and it was roadworthy still-ish. and uh we had our our son isaac who was two and three quarters years old and buckled him into the car seat and yeah and and brock said i want let's just drive and i i said okay well you know what let's drive to calgary and see how it goes and if it's not going well we can turn around and come back at any time we can turn around and come back so we started and both brock and i loved road trips so much and just the driving and Brock loved forward momentum. He loved the movement of it, right? We loved mm-hmm. going and it would, he would get so squirrely every morning because he just wanted to drive and go. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it would end up being two months we were on the road. Um, I've never calculated how much gas cost because I don't want to know the number <laughs> <laughs> with our gas guzzling 1986 Ford Frontier motorhome. But uh, he did really well when we left our, when we left our home for the trip. Brock was, uh, he needed a couple of extra strength Tylenols every couple of days to keep the pain under control with the tumors. And every two weeks, I think it was, he was getting an IV treatment. That was, it was the last thing that they could give him to, to see if it would turn the cancer around. Um, it was not doing anything as far as we could tell and as far as the x-rays were telling us. So we understood that by going on this trip, he probably wouldn't get any more treatments at all. For, for trying to cure the cancer. And so that was that was a bit of a, that was a decision, right, mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. So he got his last treatment. He grabbed his bottle of extra strength Tylenol, and we started driving. And uh, we loved it so much. It was so good. We stopped and saw family along the way and friends, and we, he got to say goodbye because a lot of these people, well, they didn't say goodbye, but these were the people he probably wouldn't see again. Um, and we just kept driving, and it felt like we were running away from it. Like, the, if we kept driving... We wouldn't have to go back. And uh, he did really well until New Brunswick. And then that's when he he crashed for the first time, not in the vehicle, but health-wise. He had three days where he had to just lie down and feel sick. And I kept on trying to keep Isaac busy with beaches and playgrounds and stuff. And then he revived for Canada Day, and we kept going. We guys kept going, and and there was this understanding that at any time, you know, we could go to an airport and fly him home if he needed it, or uh, or we could all fly home and just abandon the motorhome if we had to. 
but you know we managed to do the whole thing without that he crashed a few more times newfoundland was one big sick trip for him he hated newfoundland because he was sick the whole time (laughs) but anyway so we got off the ferry coming back from newfoundland and we were both just ready to get home and so we we booked it the last little bit and uh well we got home and that's when he had to make the decision there was one last thing he could do there was a clinical medical trial but he had to do it in Vancouver. Yeah, there would have been a lot of travel to Vancouver. So we went over one day to see, just to talk to them about it. And that trip alone almost killed him. It was so hard on him, which is amazing. He had just survived two months living in a motorhome. But mm-hmm. that one trip to Vancouver in our minivan, I have a picture of him just lying in the back of the minivan, just out. He was so sick and just so miserable. He threw up in the restaurant we went for lunch at. He was so sick. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't think you can do a I don't think we can go to Vancouver multiple times a week to get this treatment. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to say no to it because it was the last chance. Right. Um, and then I, there, this book that I'd found that was so helpful. Um, I bookmarked the bit about choosing palliative care versus curative care. And that's a big decision. Um, and he read it and I went in to check on him and he was just crying and there were Kleenexes everywhere. And he said, uh, yeah, I don't think I should do the clinical trial. I think we should stop. I want to feel, I want to see what it's like. I want to see how I feel if I don't have any drugs in my system, you know, the the chemo drugs. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want to see what I feel like. Maybe I'll feel all better. Maybe I'll be all better. No, of course not, right? But that's what he wanted. So, so that's when we entered palliative care. And for people who don't know, uh, usually if you're sick, they try to cure you. <laughs> of course mm-hmm. and the when you stop trying to cure you and it just becomes more about quality of life and feeling pain-free until you die that's palliative care so it took him a long time to make the phone call to the clinical trial saying he didn't want to do it and then finally he he said no to them and that was a big a decision for him that's when his denial i think ended when he had to say no how do you think you were best able to support him through the this part of the journey well i just i loved him so much so so much and uh i think he knew he knew that i told him all the time and he was my life partner i mean we were we were gonna be old together and do all the things we wanted to do and had adventures and um i just loved him i loved him so much and uh and uh you do your your wedding vows right in in sickness and in health and i don't think any of us really expect the sickness part to happen (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but yeah i just loved him i didn't i we would lie there and and uh i would say i wish like i wish i could just like it holds you tight enough and then some of the cancer would come into me and we could share it and even if we both got sick at least it wouldn't just be you and it would be bad enough that it would you know take you i just i just wanted to share it with them and uh, and do anything and you, you there's nothing i could do i couldn't i couldn't just give him a kidney because it was in his lungs by then and there was just nothing i could do so I did everything I could. I mean, when he was in the hospital, I 
I slept at the foot of his bed like a little kitty cat <laughs> all night. And uh, when he was in pain, I would, I was fierce. I would hunt down whoever had the painkillers and, you know, make sure he had what he needed. And, um, you know, I'd, in the middle of the night, the power outage it would shut off his oxygen machine, and I'd, you know, I'd make sure I had, I had the tanks all ready to go, so he'd have the oxygen, just whatever he wanted. I got him. He had a. Uh, he would go through these really weird cravings. <laughs> uh, this one week he ate nothing but spits and apple juice. That's all he wanted. And it was a certain brand of spits and a certain brand of apple juice. <laughs> it was like a pregnant woman, right? It's all he wanted. That's all he could eat. So I would stock up and get it all. And I brought home a grocery bag once of his spits and apple juice. He's like, I don't really want those anymore. I want a chicken burger from the pub. <laughs> I'd say, okay. <laughs> so for three days, that's all he ate was chicken burgers from the pub. And I'd go and get them and bring it back. Or, uh, he went through this phase with his chocolate sauce cake, which poor John got to eat one day. Um, mm. His chocolate sauce cake was the richest, like oh, most yeah. disgusting. <laughs> so rich. <laughs> yep. And he would pour unwhipped whipping cream on it and then eat that. <laughs> it was so gross. But he ate that for a week. That's all. That's, I just made them every day. Made him a new sauce cake. Yeah. So you mentioned the connection between, or you, you connected the conversation to pregnancy a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, in, in one of your blog posts, you make a similar connection between the process of, of death and birth and, and, mm-hmm. and that connection with farming as well. And I, I just think it's a, a really powerful and insightful observation. I wonder if you'd speak to that a little bit more. So I had this vision for <laughs> for how I was going to have my baby. You know, I was, I was all pumped. I was going to do the whole like the natural birth. I wanted to test my limits and see how it went. And then my body was like, nope, you're going to get eclampsia. <laughs> Your organs are going to start to fail. You got to cut this baby out in the hospital and spend three weeks in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And like this curveball, right? And it was such a weird thing. And then death, I think, is so much like that too. You kind of have this, ah, There's if you let your body do what it wants to do, it'll take care of you. With Brock, we just... It was so neat to see how his body took care of him when that time came. And it just made him so sleepy, right? He was so sleepy. And I, I said, aren't you afraid? Like, mm-hmm. I, are you afraid ever of what's about to happen and of all this? And he said, no. He said, I'm just really tired. And I like, you know, he was just sleepy. And his, his brain made the process easier for him. He didn't rail against the dying of the light, you know, that poem or song, whatever. He just... He was just sleepy. His body took care of him. And it gave him all these, he had the most amazing dreams and sort of visions too, right? Uh, I think a lot of people talk about seeing, you know, the ghosts of people who have gone before waiting for them. And Brock said, he said, he started seeing faces and everything. Like he'd say like right over there in the blankets, the way the blankets are, I can see a face. And it just, it was this dream world that he was entering as his brain started to shut down and his body started to shut down and he was, so he was never, as far as I could tell, afraid or even sad about what was happening to him. His body and his brain just took care of him and guided him through this, this last stage of his life, which is amazing. Our bodies are amazing. They just take care of us. Well, and Heather, you, you and Brock talked a lot about stoicism Mm -hmm. and I know you, you both subscribed highly to the stoic philosophy. How do you feel the stoic philosophy helped guide you through this journey so every every religion and life philosophy that i've encountered at least uh, has some tenant in it of um 
you know, recognize the things you can change, recognize the things you can't change, and then the wisdom to know the difference, right? And mm -hmm. stoicism, that is really the cornerstone of it, is, is just accepting that some things are inevitable and you just, all you can control is how you react to these things. And so I think Brock and I were just already those kind of people. And then when I, when I read a little more about stoicism, then it's like, oh, well, that just describes how we live life. This, this formal life philosophy is, it's what we already do. Yeah. Cause we knew, we knew there at some level in our brains that there was nothing we could do to change what was happening to them. We wanted to, but you can't. And so it was, okay, well, let's have a really, really good quality of life and do all the things that we want to do and, and spend as much time as we can together. And, uh, just try to make it I, my goal was to make Brock pain free and give him what he needed because he's still this is the denial for Brock right like he um, he didn't want to take too many drugs because he didn't want to be addicted to them now is that a dying person's thought or is that someone who expects to live for 40 years mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and and so it would be like well no you don't have to worry about addiction because you're, you're not going to live for 40 years. So you can take as many drugs as you need because the goal is for you to not feel too much pain, mm -hmm. right? It's all those little, the funny little mind tricks. Well, well and I, as you describe this, the Stoic philosophy as well, I, I think that it is such a great alternative for people who don't subscribe to a belief in a God, mm. which is which is the number of people or, or people who have not connected with a religion. And, and death can be this oppressive, terrifying nightmare scenario for people who feel, you know, who don't have the, the narrative or the story that it continues on. And so mm. stoicism, I could see that as being integral, hmm. you know, as to fill the gap. And, and, we, yeah, and we've that. talked about that as well. Yeah. Because hmm. I came from a background of fierce certainty. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that changed obviously over over time, but we had a. I remember us having many philosophical discussions about that, which Brock loved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very much. Yeah, I think it it puts the power in the moment, in the now, and inspires us to take the opportunity that we have. And I make the connection to to the Trans Canada trip that you took, and in, in that you have that ability to to create these memories and let's not put anything off let's let's focus on what we have and and make the most of it and and live life with the knowledge that we are going to die mm -hmm. so in, in those fine the final stages heather what, what were some of the helpful and unhelpful things people said to you um and and you know as a, as a second question as mm -hmm. well looking back what would you say would be the best advice you would give to somebody to give to somebody in your situation well one thing that was super helpful was john offering to cut my lawn for me because <laughs> here was you know a need that we had that he saw because my lawn was really overgrown and he could do it because he had this crew that would go cut lawns so he said heather we're going to cut your lawn I said, thank you. <laughs> that was super helpful. That was identifying a need. I didn't have to ask for help. If anything, I protested maybe and said, no, no, I got this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he just insisted. He's like, you're on the schedule now, so suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> um, that was super helpful. And people, uh, I mean, people want to help in all these different ways. 
Um, but that, you know, that where they can actually see the need that we need and meet it, that was huge. Mm -hmm. It was a bit tricky because a lot of people want to show their love with food. But when you have health issues, there are weird random dietary problems, right. you know? Yeah. So every once in a while, um, like Brock, you know, kidney, his kidney he didn't have a kidney for a little bit. So, well, forever, I guess, after it got cut out. But his kidneys were a bit funny, so he couldn't have too much protein. He'd get really sick. Um, so, you know, that's a dietary random thing. Uh, and people just don't know that. You don't know it. So, you know, what they bring you the really high-protein food, and they, it's nice. The gesture is so nice. But it's just, yeah, it's trying to see the need. The, um, mm. yeah, the most great. unhelpful thing I got was, you're still young. You'll find someone else. That was the most oh, unhelpful man. thing. Somebody said that. <laughs> Two people, at least two people said it to me. People who kind of knew me, but not, you know, super close. And, and you could just see them, like they were just saying their thoughts out loud. It mm -hmm. wasn't like it was a conscious, here you go. It was just, no. well, she's young. She'll find someone else. And then they said it out loud. They're that speaking from their own, you know, fear and lack and uncomfortableness with the situation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what I take from John's gesture was uh, the level of understanding you have of someone you use that in in providing support in mm -hmm. their time of of need is you know we all the people who are close with we we know them well enough to be able to give them something and make an offer that that does truly suit their situation and just do it force the love <laughs> force right? the, because, because it was overwhelming yeah. <laughs> the kindness we received mm -hmm. just from people who knew us well, but also from, you know, strangers, honestly. It was amazing how good people were and how just they wanted to support us. It was it was obscene. I wrote a I wrote a thing on my website about that one day, just listing all the food that was in our fridge at that time, the three mm -hmm. different kinds of cookies that were on our counter, you know, all the different things people were doing. It was overwhelming. I did I couldn't keep up with thank you notes. I still feel guilty about that. There was there were too many people to thank. But it was it was reciprocal. It was because of how much you loved and cared for everybody. Um, I, I still remember having to get over myself, especially in the final year when I would come over and talk with Brock and he would always turn the conversation to me and yeah. ask with a light in his eyes, a genuine love and caring and understanding about, you know, how Lush is going or what, what am I working on next? What's what's the latest I've read? Um, and and I would I remember at first feeling this guilt that I was selfishly promoting my own life that was going well, or you know, I felt like I had to hide things and Brock, Brock helped me get over that. Hmm. Cause, cause I realized he truly was excited to hear. He was truly wanting to know. And I think that's one thing I've taken from this experience is, um, is we have to get over ourselves before we can be fully present to help people. And, hmm. and it was a weird egoic thing that I that I couldn't be fully myself and, and and share with Brock because I felt guilty because he was losing his life and how can I talk about mine and hmm. I think that's a fairly human emotion that a lot of people would probably feel with somebody but I'm, I wouldn't make that mistake again hmm. I think part of it too is everyone's needs are so different when they're in that when they're when they're in that situation sick or dying mm -hmm. and uh i know for brock i mean he he loved hearing your stories and he loved the mm -hmm. the stimulation of his friends lives and what they were up to because mm -hmm. he was honestly interested and cared mm -hmm. um and they i know that he uh 
and he, he never had patience for small talk, right? No, he, he no. needed small talk. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think it's funny because a lot of there's that sort of that I, I have it too. There's always that desire of someone's sick or they're dying. You want to go to them, like be with them, be in the room with them, that kind of thing. Um, but he hated that. He didn't want to have 20 people all around just staring at him, mm-hmm. you know, making small talk. That would have been his nightmare. Mm-hmm. He would have been, Heather, euthanize me. I'm done. This is unpleasant, <laughs> you know. Um, so everyone kind of has their own way they want to deal with this stuff. And that was probably the biggest lesson I learned was that you need to ask the person mm-hmm. if they're sick or if they're dying, do you want to have everybody in your room mm-hmm. or do you not? Do you, you know, do you want to have visitors or do you not? Do you want to, can I, would you like me to make you food? What kind of food can I make you? It's really about that. And I think a lot of our instinct too is to not ask the sick person about their disease or what's killing them. Um, but Brock wanted to talk about it. He liked talking about it. Mm-hmm. Not liked to, but you know, he, it was his life. That was his reality. And we would, I remember there were a few times people would come over and at the end they would leave and he'd say, they would, they never asked me about my day. They didn't ask me about what's going on with me. They, mm-hmm. they talked a lot and I learned a lot about them, but they didn't ask me where I was. They didn't ask me what I, how I spend my time. I didn't get to tell them about the books I'm trying to write before I die. I didn't get to tell them about this new thing the doctor said. They just never asked. Mm-hmm. And maybe not everyone feels that way. Maybe they don't want to talk about being sick, but I learned to customize, you know, really pay attention to the person you're trying to help and, and figure out what they want and need and ask them what they want and need. And don't just impose your assumption that they want company or your assumption that they want, you know, mm-hmm. food. Figure it out. Ask them. One question I did have, as I've been thinking, listening to this, is Isaac. Mm-hmm. That must have been such a ch- well. I remember it was such a challenge. Here, here you have a fully dependent toddler. Very active. Very active. <laughs> very bright. Very curious about the world. And and that's that's a full time job as it is. In, mm-hmm. in your you have another full time job with Brock in his final final moments in his final years. How did you strike that balance? I mean, what was how were you able to divert your attention? It must have been such a such a struggle. Well, my goal was to have no regrets. I wanted to feel like all the decisions we made were the right decision. Looking back, I didn't want to have feelings like I did the wrong thing, and I was realizing that a regret in the making was that I wasn't spending enough time with Brock because Mm -hmm. I I knew I only had, you know, a limited time with him, but hopefully I'll have lots of years with Isaac. Mm -hmm. And so um, I identified that was a problem. And I can't, I don't think I directly asked for help from my family. (laughs) I'm not that sort of person to be good at asking for help, but I somehow mom figured it out and she came out in November, I think it was, and stayed for five months with us. And her job was Isaac. She took Isaac all day long. And then I had him after dinner and I put him to bed. But that gave me every day I was free to be with Brock. And when he was hungry, I could feed him. I could run down and get his chicken burgers from the pub (laughs) or do his grocery shopping or give him a back rub when the tumor was hurting him or um, help him in the shower, which was a really big project Mm -hmm. um, or any of those things. I just, we just got to sit and lie together and talk and read books and, read out passages to each other and as we always did right and because of that i i don't have any regrets Hmm. but that's how i survived that and then in the summer my brock's family was so helpful with taking him and my dad came out for the last month and a bit of brock's life and then stayed with me after 
just to just to be with Isaac, just to take Isaac, so I could focus on Brock. So and Isaac doesn't remember that, in, except in any happy way, right? <laughs> he remembers playing with his Grammy, and that's great. He doesn't remember his mom neglecting him. Yay! I remember you talking about having to explain to Isaac for the first time what was going on with his dad. Yeah, I didn't want to. I was hoping I could not have that conversation with my, you know, three-year-old mm -hmm. about his daddy dying. But uh, I was noticing, I let him watch, um, we were, you know, he'd be watching this YouTube video and he loved this thing called the Axel Show. And it's all about a dad playing with his kid. Mm. Uh, and he'd be watching it and, uh, you know, and Brock would be asleep in his bed and it'd be the middle of the day. And I, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> he's going to think that his daddy doesn't want to play with him, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we started off. But I'd say, um, your dad is sick and then, and then, um, and he's not going to get better. Uh, and one day he will die. And it was, you know, gradual. Like I worked up to that one. And then he, of course he had all the questions along the way, like, will I die? Will you die? Um, what's going to happen when he dies? And we sort of, we had started, ha started having to have all these conversations when he was three. Um, I'm glad that we did it because I didn't want him to feel like his dad was, didn't want to be with him. That was a big, big thing. I wanted him to understand his dad wanted to be with him, but he couldn't because he was sick. And yeah. Mm. And even now, I mean, dealing with, uh, like right now it is, it's, uh, it's Brock's 40th birthday on March 31st. So mm -hmm. today, this morning, we've been talking about his birthday party and uh, Isaac made invitations to the family. He drew them all. Right now he's working on some decorations for the party and we're going to do our cake and that and I, I'll get a little present that Isaac will open. Today he said, he said who's going who's gonna to blow out the candles on the cake? Because daddy's dead. And I said, well, you get to blow them out because he'd want you to blow them out. And he said, oh, yay! You know, mm -hmm. he's so excited. Um, <laughs> but even now, just trying to find the right way to talk about it all is tricky. Mm -hmm. And it really throws a curveball when you know, someone else will talk about heaven and and we don't do that like that's not our family uh so i have to kind of manage like everybody has their different thoughts on what happens when you die and none of us know for sure because we're not dead and but here are some thoughts and you can choose your own thoughts what you like and he'll make up some magical story about you go live in a castle or something i don't know mm -hmm. but we talk a lot about death and souls he talks about souls someone told him about souls so we've been having to talk about that and uh you know i don't try to shoot anyone else's theories down i just we just have conversations around it all. But he's five, and we're having conversations about souls. The zombies was a big one at Halloween. He, he wanted to know if his daddy was going to come back as a zombie, mm -hmm. which is not a fun conversation to have. Mm -hmm. But it's good mm -hmm. therapy for me to have to have these conversations every single day. Well, in that book you referenced, uh, maybe, maybe you could name it again, because I think that book, we'll put in the show notes as well, but that book was so instrumental in, in navigating this journey for, your, for yourself. It, yeah. ta it talks openly about the importance of, of talking about death and, and about the deceased and not hiding anything. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a whole chapter on children in that one. Yes. Yep. Um, I found this book because uh, every time anything happens to me, I, I need to read about it. Just <laughs> mm -hmm. how I process things. So when I got pregnant, I was the one with the stack of what to expecting books. Mm -hmm. And then when Brock got sick, I, I looked everywhere for a book that would 
be the book that would give me all the information. And the cancer books are all about breast cancer and how to eat properly and what to do now that you're in remission. So that's not helpful. And so finally, I figured out that for my books, I needed to go in the grief section because that's what we were dealing with. We were dealing with shock and denial and all of the grief feelings about knowing Brock was going to die. So, uh, and then someone said, go to hospice because they have lots of grief books. And that's where we found um, the author is Maggie Callanan and the book is called Final Journeys. And it's all about the last, like the last stage of your life. So uh, people who are, who are dying in an act, in an active way, I guess we're all dying, but um, Mm -hmm. it's so helpful. It talks about, you know, in a family, maybe one person responds with anger to a cancer diagnosis. One person responds with tears. One person is in denial. And how do you manage all these people responding in all these ways? And then the next day, they've all switched to different kinds of responses. And that book saved us. It was so good. I bought copies and gave them to mm-hmm. all the close people in our lives so everyone could be on the same page. Oh, and I could just say, yeah. read chapter six. Mm-hmm. In terms of experiencing grief and all of the emotions and ever-changing feelings that come along with it. You spoke about numbness as kind of a a default or a coping mechanism. And and I believe it was, looking back, it was one that maybe you didn't feel great about or or, Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't as effective. Do you want to speak about that? I was shocked. At, so Brock died, and uh, I fully expected to just have the movie, you know, on my knees, tears, sobbing. That's what I expected to happen because I loved him, right? There was no con- no ambiguity. There's no ambivalence. I just loved him. And so, of course, if he dies, I'm sad. But that wasn't what happened. He died, and then I was just numb. There was nothing. I didn't cry. It was nothing. And, uh, and I, I felt so guilty about it because of all the people who should be mourning him. You know, it's me and his family and, and his really close friends. We should all be on our knees ripping our clothes, right? And I just, and I just was so tired <laughs> from mm-hmm. uh, being a mom for four years and, and taking care of Brock and dealing with um, the emotional drama of knowing he was going to die for three years or two or three years that we knew it. Uh, yeah, I was so tired and I was just numb and I felt so guilty about it that I, I delayed kind of reporting into my support group that I'd been going to because I, I was so embarrassed that I was going to go and, and not be sad when this, you know, man I loved had died and, uh, I thought I would just postpone it until I was properly grieving, until I was feeling what I was supposed to be feeling, and then I would go and I would, you know, be what they wanted, they expected me to be. Mm-hmm. But it just mm-hmm. eventually I realized from books, from hospice, and that that numbness is 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 perfectly normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's a perfectly normal thing to feel because because my brain, even now, my brain is still kind of watching for him. You know, the like guys still don't quite understand that he's gone and it's been 17 months now and uh i still don't quite get it like i uh, like i see his pic i have his pictures everywhere in our house and every time i see them i smile because it's hey brock you know he's still there in some way for me and when i get a little closer to understanding the permanence of it 
that that he really is gone, um, then I get sad. But but there's still this this sort of numbness and shock to it all. My brain can't take it in yet, and it's been that long. Yeah, <laughs> my dad died a few years ago, and I still feel like I see him everywhere. I recognize somebody in the street, and and uh, for a split second, you know, yeah. think it's him. Mm-hmm. And another thing, um, the the guilt of a certain emotion or a certain reaction in grief is, I think it it's natural and at the same time terrible. Um, mm-hmm. it, anyone experiencing grief should be, or it would be wonderful if they they could just process it and and let those emotions out in whatever way is natural and and gives them the best sense of relief or or whatever feels right and and yet i remember reacting in anger about something that my family did and then feeling incredibly guilty that 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 anger came out mm-hmm. and uh it's just not fair and it's not right to to not be allowed to have that emotion and so i i think that sense of understanding and that it's normal and and it's okay um is a, is a gift that we should give to one another and, and ourselves when we're experiencing grief. For, for me, I liken it to unexpected waves that come ascent. Um, sometimes I'm, I'll be watching a sports game and I'll go to text my dad. <laughs> and, and you know, right? You know they've been dead for years. And you just, you pick up the phone to, and it's just like, what? Uh, a, a movie scene, a, a song it just it just hits you and so the metaphor that's been helpful to me is just learning to surf with the waves the waves aren't ever going to go away but if you can learn to surf them then they don't have to overwhelm you and that's that's helped me and yeah it's surprising what will hit my birthday was very hard mm-hmm. i didn't expect that my birthday's always been basically a national holiday in my life mm-hmm. but when i yeah i turned 39 and i uh i was officially older than brock and that was that was really that was really hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then his uh, dad, um, anniversaries of all kinds, I guess, are supposed to be hard, and or they often are hard. And uh, yeah, his death month, uh, he died September September twenty of uh, twenty seventeen. So you know, Isaac was starting kindergarten. We were moving into our house, and uh, and then of course it was the anniversary of his death. So all the you know, the photos and stuff from Facebook pop up as memories. And, mm-hmm. and I was remembering all of it. And, uh, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't even leave the house without crying. I was trying to take Isaac to the playground one day and I couldn't make it out of the gate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was on the step just losing my shit because I, I couldn't keep it together. And, uh, yeah, it's weird. The things that hit, and his birthday last year was fun. We had a little party for him, and I'm hoping this this birthday is good too. His 40th is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. I want to do flamingos for him, or get him all the Lordy Lordy Lacus 40 <laughs> stuff from the dollar store. And <laughs> I won't do it that far, but we'll, we'll have a, his cake. <laughs> in a couple a couple of weeks from now uh, is the wedding anniversary as well. I'll never forget Heather because I was at home about to get ready to to landscape and I got a call from you saying, hey, John, what are you doing this morning? I said, well, I thought I'd do, you know, my business. <laughs> and you're like, do you want to, do you want to come on over? I'll come over for what? Uh, well, we need you at the farm. Well, what's going on at the farm? Brock and I want to get married. I was like, what? 
<laughs> like, it was literally like that. And uh, yeah, the, the, you can see the picture on, on Heather's blog. Uh, this wonderful picture. Um, Brock, Brock mowed the little bit of lawn and, and got it all ready. It's, it was such a beautiful moment. And yeah. That was... You're there all dirty and sweaty in your lush eco lawn yeah. shirt. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I loved it. I think I was working. Yeah. I'd, I'd just been had grass clippings all over me. <laughs> what a trooper. <laughs> oh, it was such a beautiful moment. Yeah. yeah. So one of the reasons that you wanted to do this interview and I, I really applaud your your openness and and how much you are willing to share your emotion either just today but also through your blog and and putting it all out there and the the amount that it helps others who have experienced trauma and and are maybe going through trauma now and i think it's it's just invaluable and and for those who have reached out to you to say thank you i'm sure there's countless countless others who haven't but have been impacted so i really want to express my appreciation for your willingness to be raw let those negative emotions come out and and share it because it's really not an easy thing to do and one of the one of the reasons you wanted to come on was to help brock's memory live on and, and keep keep him around and present and I wonder how how best we can do that. Um, he he was working on so many things when he died. This was he was just he was so smart. I mean that brain of his. I I I still don't really understand how well his brain was working there. But um, yeah. So, anyways, when we left the farm in 2015, I started a I built a website for him so that because it just made me crazy that he was writing all these things and he wasn't sharing them with people. It would, it, it was such a waste. Right. So I made him this website, brockmcleod.com and uh, he started posting stuff on there. And a lot of it is just like, he's actually crossed stuff out and it's unedited. I'm just like, put it up. I'm, I would, I would, I want people to see his ideas and read what he had to say about the world. And it's not, a lot of it's not reader friendly, unfortunately, because he just, that's, it was just how his brain worked. But um, that's my long-term project is to get more of that stuff up on the website for him and then to do my best to, to get people to read it. So this one uh, man, a professor at Vancouver Island University, he found one of the essays and, and asked if he could publish it on their online magazine. Mm-hmm. So Brock got published, which is uh, so exciting. After he had died, mm-hmm. he, one of his pieces on the importance of a liberal studies education was published in their publication, which is super cool. Um, but I would just love for his brain to live on a little bit. We talked a lot about wouldn't it be cool if we could put his brain in a in a vat and plug it into the computer and mm-hmm. his brain could live on. <laughs> but we can't do that. But I, I have all his papers. I didn't throw any of that out at all. So Well, um, and we have the Brock McLeod Scholarship Fund, which we can talk yeah. about that a little bit. That's, that's exciting. There were two that we did... Um, the one that he really wanted was to encourage people to study liberal studies at Vancouver Island University or other schools. But he just really felt that a, a liberal studies education was the best education. And that's one where you go in and you read a, a text, a classic text usually, and then discuss it as a group and pick it apart and, think, and talk about it. Like talk about the ideas. People don't talk about ideas enough in his eyes. Um, and he loved, he loved his liberal studies education. So we have one scholarship that is given to a, 
third or fourth year student who's pursuing liberal studies at that school and the faculty choose the recipient every year. Um, we did that this year. And then we started one at, like, for like a, a grade 12 graduate from someone in the Cowichan School District because mm-hmm. the community was so good to us when he was sick and be, before that with our farm that we wanted to have something to encourage critical thinkers who were graduating from that school district. So those two, um, I, got, I got to choose the recipient for the Cowichan one and that was super fun. John helped me with that. He presented mm-hmm. the award. Mm-hmm. And, but I got to read through them all and kind of find the one that was most like Brock, right? That showed mm-hmm. the most Brock-like brain promise. So that was super fun. And then Cheetah Slow Cowichan has started a Brock McLeod Memorial Award for Best Farming Practices, which mm-hmm. is great. And when they approached me with that, I, I said, are you sure? Because he had some very strong opinions <laughs> about <laughs> what a good farm was. Do you, are you sure you want to do this? And they said, yep, let's go for it. So I sent them a big list of everything I could remember about Brock's views on what a good farm was. And they managed to find recipients this year. So that's great. Um, and if people want to financially donate to any of these, how, how could they do that? Um, it's all on... The, um, you go to brockmcleod.com there's a mem- in, mem- in memory section and okay. so I, I have his eulogy on there I have a lot of the readings that we did at his memorial service um, and then the links to all those all those kinds of scholarships and awards yeah. are on there too well we'll definitely be putting that in the show notes as well as your blog thanks uh, we've mentioned your blog so many times it is simply the best writing I've ever read on navigating death and grief and i i just i implore everybody to read it it's just brilliant heartfelt authentic writing heather you it's yeah thank you so much for sharing it it must thank you i know it was partly therapeutic but but we we get a benefit from your from your therapy so thank you so much it's wonderful yeah it's part of the human experience and and we can't shy away from that and and you're an extraordinary example of of kind of leaning in and we talk about obstacles and leaning into them and seeing what we can learn from them and how they can help us grow and and it, it's almost it almost seems brash to to kind of apply that to to your situation but you were willing and strong enough to be able to lean in and I can't compliment you enough for that and I'm curious what you may have learned from about yourself from this experience Hmm. Well, so here's the thing. So one of the side effects, I guess, of grief is uh, it's like brain fog, right? Your brain just starts working in a really weird way. I, I, I am not the high-functioning person I once was, and I like to think that one day um, I'll, be, I'll be able to hold on to thoughts and ideas a little better than I got used to. But, yeah, I've learned to be a little more gentle with myself. <laughs> because I do have high expectations for what I'm capable of, and and uh, but I am very much still reeling from what happened to us, and uh, every time I have to make a decision, it's really hard because I made decisions with Brock for eleven and a half years, and you know little things like like what kind of salsa to buy. <laughs> I it's those little things that I I don't even. I really struggle with decisions and uh, I've learned to make a lot of to-do lists and I've learned that I need to have a calendar where I write down obligations and commitments because I will forget them 
I'm just, I'm learning to be gentler with myself. And when I miss something or I forget, you know, to get that thing, I meant to get a Canadian tire the next time I was there. I've just learned to be gentle or with myself and not beat myself up because um, I'm definitely still operating at, you know, a fraction of the capacity I once had. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about that yesterday about how, I mean, the life insurance, we talked about the life insurance and I'm, I'm so lucky that I, I know people who, uh, you know, their spouse passes or they have to deal with a death and they're right back into the workforce. And I, I, I could do it if I had to, but I, um, I, I don't have to, I have this little bit of time where I can, I can, uh, just be gentle with myself and work mm -hmm. through all this <laughs> stuff that's in my head still and mm -hmm. how lucky that is and how grateful I am to Brock for, for creating that cushion for us. And, um, and kind of, I mean, he said, Heather, you should, you know, when they die and you get that money, you should take a year and just focus on your writing. And, mm -hmm. and I said, no, I, that's not how I roll. I got to get a job and be responsible. And he said, no, no, just, you know, see what you can do and just be gentle and yeah so I think of that a lot and give myself permission to not <laughs> and to just be just to recover from it all I'm lucky I'm super lucky that I have that ability I've been given that ability to do it because of the life insurance money and Brock blessing it you know mm -hmm. yeah so so as, as a way to maybe you know bring things to a close I'm sure our listeners are all wondering right now what is Heather doing right now? Like, where is she, where is she living? What's she up to? What does life look like now? And, you know, you moved to Invermere, your childhood mm -hmm. home, your father um, built you this wonderful home that you're in now that you just, that you, you've called your Zen space, your happy place. Um, mm -hmm. Isaac is in kindergarten now. Mm -hmm. I have um, 28 more hours of free time every week with him in school. <laughs> and how have you been spending that time? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know some of the things you've been up to, like for instance, your journey through pushing your body, which has been mm -hmm. so exciting for me to, for me to see <laughs> because I mean, back, back when we were in Duncan and I'd be doing all the tough mutters and jogging past your house and stuff, you would just look at me quizzically in the evening and be like, <laughs> But, but you know, it, I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoy that kind of thing, John. But but why? I mean, why <laughs> why why do that? It sounds awful. But now you're doing it. You know, you posted mm -hmm. the other day. I just did seven chin ups in a row, and it's it's amazing. <laughs> it's maybe maybe talk to how all that began. Um, your new foray into pushing your body. Hmm. That was September. I like I said. I just it was so hard. Brock's death anniversary month. Just it just it just knocked me on my ass, and I. I was surprised by that. And then, yeah, to deal with it, I went to Vancouver. And that car ride to go to the airport, I was all by myself. I was in my car, super great road. And I started just driving faster and faster and faster, and irresponsibly, but whatever, mm -hmm. faster and faster. And I just had this little adrenaline kick. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I don't feel sad anymore. And so mm -hmm. somehow that led to um, going, I go to the gym three mornings a week. I do kickboxing two nights a week. Um, I go cross country skiing and snowboarding and skating a little bit. And uh, like I, I have muscles. <laughs> it's yeah. so funny. I have visible arm muscles now. <laughs> I can do push ups and sit ups, like, you know, like they're easy. Um, I don't know. It, this is a new thing for me. When it's with summer, we'll be doing more hikes around here. And I'm, I, I keep thinking about jogging around that track that's down out, out my window. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I feel like the more I move, 
And maybe part of it is running away too from the hmm. the sadness of it all. But uh, it's you know partly it's in celebration of of my body and of being healthy because Brock can't do these things and I want to do them for him. And part of it is making the most of my life because I know it can end at any moment. And and then just it grounds me so much. Like if I'm really sad or having a rough day, then if I go to the gym, I feel better. I I, I can zone in on the feel the physicality of it rather than getting lost in my in my head a little bit so yeah it's a new weird thing and i keep expecting it to end i keep expecting me to not want to go to the gym but then i just sign up for another thing and there mm. we go i'm paragliding and <laughs> who knew yeah yeah it there's there's a lot of different ways to process things and i i think pushing yourself physically it's can one of be, the more healthy ways can be a good one <laughs> yeah. it can be a good choice and as long as it's you mentioned balance a little bit in, in one of your more recent posts, and I think it's important to give yourself that balance and and not push too hard and still have that space to allow uh, what's what's truly going on for for each of us to to be aware of that. That's the tricky thing is not using all of that to run away from it because it does quiet my head and. And uh, so I do, I mean, I have Brock's pictures everywhere, which really help, you know, rem- remind me of what I'm dealing with. That's very helpful. But the physicality is an easy way to escape it. So I'm, I'm trying to find the balance of, of still letting myself cry when I get sad, but, but also enjoying the, the physicality of the exercise. Too. Um, Heather, I wanted to do something, if, if it's all right with you. Yeah, go for um, it. I, I found a couple sentences on your blog. Well, there's a thousands of senses on your blog that really hit me but there was one that I thought uh, I would love for our listeners to hear and just maybe further encourage them to go go to your blog and so I just want to read these few sentences you wrote um, a little while ago how lucky I am to have met Brock and had 11 and a half years loving him and I still have him with me or at least the echoes of what he'd say throughout the day last week he reminded me to add peat moss to the garlic beds He congratulated me when I submitted to a mystery novel competition. We talk all the time. Me random and buzzing. Brock thoughtful and insightful. I hope I never lose this habit of anticipating his responses. I love growing older with Brock still in my brain. And I've learned it's possible to have Brock with me on the inside, but still have my heart open to someone new. I've learned it's okay if the future ends up different from the independent widow heaven I had planned. Either way, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful reflection. And it's just been such a privilege spending the last hour and a half with you listening to how you've navigated this, for lack of a better term, nightmare scenario for, for, for most people. Mm-hmm. And Thank you so much for your willingness to be vulnerable and authentic. I mean, this is a master class in both. And I know I think I can speak on behalf of all our listeners that this is a tremendous gift we'll all carry with us. So thank you so much, Heather. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I just want to say I never had the opportunity to meet Brock, but um, I want to thank both of you for bringing him on the podcast with us today. Yay! You'd love it. <laughs> Thank you.
that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm -hmm, For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.